It's January 2017, Episode 9, Doing Good with Drupal. Welcome to Hacking Culture, featuring in-depth interviews with free software advocates. Hacking Culture is brought to you by Lullabot, and I'm your host, Matthew Tift. Welcome back to Hacking Culture. It's been more than a year since I last recorded an episode, but I'm back and I have lots of new episodes in the works. Today I'm joined by two other people from Lullabot, Matt Westgate and Seth Brown. Matt is Lullabot's CEO and co-founder. Seth is the chief operating officer. I invited them on the show because I wanted to hear their ideas about doing good, both as Lullabots and in the community at large, Seth has been involved in the Drupal community for a decade. Matt is approaching his 14th year of starting an account on Drupal.org. And while titles like CEO and COO evoke certain stereotypes, both of them are technically adept. Matt authored the first edition of Pro Drupal Development book, and I'm pretty sure that Seth has taken more programming classes than I have. In a sense, this episode will be just as much about the hacking of culture as it is about the culture of hacking. I'd like to start off with a little bit of background and talk about Lullabot specifically, then move on to the Drupal community at large, as well as the broader free Libra and open source community. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Great to be here. Let's start with you, Matt. Could you tell us why you started Lullabot? Is that because I talked first? Was that a trap? <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, Matthew, it's it's good to be on your, your podcast. Thanks for inviting both Seth and I. Um, we're really excited to be here. So Lullabot started in 2006, and before that, I kept uh, poking around uh, at Drupal. And I was a student at Iowa State University I lived in in uh, Iowa at the time, and I inadvertently uh, had the right-click experience on the internet when I was younger and uh, ended up viewing the source code of yahoo.com, and it felt like I had entered the matrix, like I had no idea what it was, but it all looked really cool with all the angle brackets and everything. And it kind of opened up my my worldview that there was this whole technology thing going on that I had no idea how it existed. From there, uh, it was also right around the time when, I can't remember the exact order, but I think it was MySQL, Apache, and then PHP, or some combination thereof, all decided to offer uh, free binaries for Windows. Uh, otherwise, I was reading these articles about server-side uh, programs and stuff, but all I had is just my parents' computer, which was like a Windows 95 machine, and so I couldn't couldn't run anything as much as I wanted to. But then those binaries became available, and I started uh, hacking around with the software and got really excited about it. And um, I started doing some work. And like any good uh, hacker or programmer, I, uh, I wanted to build my own content management system, and so I did, and then people started paying me 
to use my content management system on their uh, on their uh, platforms. Uh, I the city that I worked for or the city that I lived in, I want a contract to build uh, their website. Uh, and I got into this big heap of mess, uh, which was I had about 10 clients all paying me for this CMS that I wrote uh, that quickly just spiraled out of control because I barely knew what version control was. And I was spending more time fixing bugs and adding features. And that's kind of how I fell into Drupal. Uh, and I remember like looking around at all the different CMSs and I saw the Drupal website, and at the time, you know, this is like Drupal 4.1. The website wasn't very, just compelling, shall we say. Uh, And uh, I saw it, closed it, went off and started looking at other things. And then uh, eventually I went back and actually took a look at the source code. And that's where the real neat experience was, was actually seeing all of the comments and how you know the how the node module worked and stuff and i i felt like i had found something significant and so because it was free um there was also there was also the ability to participate and the community was strong it wasn't a huge community but they were very active and very open uh, and very transparent uh, about what they were doing so I joined the mailing list, started talking to people. Uh, later on, uh, I met John Van Dyke at Iowa State. Uh, John Van Dyke uh, is the co-author of Pro Drupal Development, uh, and we uh, we were writing the, the book together, and he was actually teaching me a lot of um, programming principles and stuff uh, that uh, ended up coming in very handy. Uh, but what happened is this: uh, the more we got into Drupal, the more excited uh, that, that we got. And, uh, eventually, like, even though I had a, a day job at the university, uh, just the demand for Drupal work continued to increase and increase. Uh, and one day, uh, my co-founder, Jeff Robbins, he reached out to me, had a project that he wanted to work on. Uh, and so we worked on that together and went really well. And, uh, just, I ended up quitting my day job at the university, and we launched uh, Lullabot uh, January 1st of 2006. And it was a great opportunity to hire (laughs) all of these amazing, inspiring people in the Drupal community. And since Drupal wasn't started in the United States, we kind of made a decision from day one to become a a distributed company um, because the best talent was was everywhere in the world. Uh, And, yeah, that's how we got started. And as they say, the, the rest is history. When you guys started, you did it because you had a, quote, higher goal of invention. You wanted the company to do good while doing well. And it seems to me that Lullabot over the years has had some fairly serious goals. And we have statements on our website like, uh, we will work with you, you know, based on whether or not you're a good human being we'd enjoy working with. So I'm also curious in, in that process of starting the company over the, in the past 10 years that have ensued, how well you think that Lullabot has done living up to your goal of doing good while doing well? That's a good question. I, I don't know if it's fair of me to judge myself or if I do judge myself that I tend to be <laughs> the worst crit- critic. You know, we always want to do more. But uh, I think we, we do do our best work when we're 
when we are inspired. Uh, and so the statement of like, listen, you know, uh, we're doing client service work. We're in service to our clients. And so we want to make sure that that we can make a meaningful uh, impact in in the work that we're contributing to. And I think that statement reflects just how important it is to, you know, maintain creativity and passion uh, about the work. And oftentimes that creativity and passion in client services tends to come from the people itself. Uh, and so that's a really important thing for us. Uh, you know, I mean, the whole thing with, with Lullabot when we started was we just wanted to amplify what we were doing and what could be done with Drupal, you know, I think that was the spirit of, of invention. Uh, it was, it was, it was invention, but it was also teaching and education and empowering others in the same way that was like, you know, when I did that accidental right click on yahoo.com went, Oh my God, what is this? I gotta be in this. It was the same thing as reading the source code of, of Drupal of, of Drupal, which is super, super silly to say, but you know, it's like the difference between reading poetry and prose, right? You, you open up a dictionary, you go, okay, I understand what that word is. You read a, a haiku from you know the early days and you're like, Oh my God, that was so meaningful and so rich. And that's kind of what it was like for me. And, and I was being, I was able to do all these cool things with Drupal. You know, there was a solution for that. I could help my friends. I could, you know, have a have a company that I really wanted to to share and empower others. That building websites didn't have to be so painful. So I think that was a lot of the early days of the spirit uh, of of Lullabot was teaching, sharing, empowering others, uh, and just being transparent in the learning process as we as we were learning too. I want to bring Seth into the conversation, too, who's been patiently listening. Seth, there must have been something about the, that company that made you want to join. And I know you started slightly different coming into the company as a project manager. It was even before that when we first met Seth. Oh, yeah. So, Seth, tell us how you came to be part of Lullabot. I took a training in April of 2007. Um, I was running another digital agency, and we were looking to move to Drupal uh, and so I went out to Providence to the music mansion and took one of the, you know, early lullabot workshops and was even more inspired by the people that I met in lullabot than I was by, you know, even Drupal, although Drupal was awesome too. So it was, you know, I guess when I met everyone, I was very drawn to the culture of the company. And so fast forward three years later, um, when I was kind of looking for my next thing uh, and saw, you know, that Lullabot was hiring, I, I jumped on that. And uh, yeah, it was, it was good timing. I had just been through the growth of another agency from 15 to about 30 people and Lullabot was 15 at the time. And so it, it made sense. You know, I had, I felt like I had something to offer a lucky, uh, lucky match. You've been around for a while now and you and I have had a lot of conversations about work and the meaning of work and about, you know, what it means uh, in terms of how our work affects our families. I remember when when you hired me early on, you were talking about how we couldn't have outside jobs because, you know, you wanted us to work at Lullabot and spend time with your family and maybe learn some things on the side. But But that was it. And I remember it seemed a little bit like the mafia. You wrote an article last year where you asked the question, does working from home benefit the environment? 
in that article, you talked about things like the moral high ground. You crunched a whole bunch of numbers and you ultimately concluded that uh, working at home increases our carbon footprint. So then you talked about some ways to offset the problem and, in your words, absolve your sins. But you didn't quit your job after you wrote that article. So there must be something else about the company that keeps you there. So the, the way that the company works and the way that we're building software, or if you could talk a little bit about the role of ethics and morals in software development. Yeah, there's a lot of questions, I think, within that question or within that windup. I mean, quickly to speak to the, you know, environmental impact of working from home, the main thing is that we uh, have to fly to retreats and sales meetings and other things to get together um, as a company. And basically, you can do a lot of things with efficient light bulbs and turning off lights in your rooms and driving less miles and taking public trans transit and you know, wasting less food or being a vegan, and you can do all of those things. And then just one or two plane rides a year will cancel out, you know, all of the savings that you've, you've, so that was kind of the math that I discovered was that like, sort of air travel is the ultimate carbon sin. Um, Sorry to use religious language, I I don't really mean it in a religious context. Um, But you can also buy offsets and the offset market has come a long way. Um, And so as far as like, how do I reconcile my own ethics about the changing environment and climate change, which I think is the biggest um, problem confronting humanity right now. um, You know, there are things that, that we can do, Um, you know, as far as like ethics and software development, um, obviously promoting open source and, and, you know, even the kinds of communities that grow up around open source projects end up actually being something that we can emulate in other societal structures um, and draw on the same tools and the same breakthroughs that the open source community has made uh, to, you know, organize people, for instance. And I think, you know, the going back to the Dean campaign, you know, that was a big revelation in in politics, for instance, that you could sort of use technology and, and open source software in particular to drive a, a grassroots campaign and, you know, find ways to, to communicate that were more effective and more efficient than than the ways that had come before it. So I think that being part of open source is, is the thing that I think we do that is perhaps the, the most meaningful um, in terms of positive impacts um, that we can have on the world. The other thing is, you know, open source software is available to everyone. You know, Matt was alluding to what it was like to be, uh, you know, a kid with his parents' Windows 95 machine. Imagine what it's like to be, you know, Cuban um, and not have access to iOS or OSX or Windows or any commercial, um, you know, software that's that's sort of because of the embargoes against Cuba for a long time were not available within Cuba. And so, you know, they had to use Linux and they had to use these other tools. And so I think it's true also for places where there's a lot of economic disadvantages, you know, assuming that you have computers or phones, which is not always a fair assumption. But if you do, you know, open source becomes a viable way to accomplish things um, for for those that are disadvantaged. Um, I don't want to oversell it because I think, 
you know, there's good that comes out of commercial software too. And also there's bad that comes out of, um, you know, open source software. It can be used for nefarious purposes, but I think on the balance, I hope that it, it leads to, you know, more democracy. Um, one thing though, that, you know, I think we've just seen is, you know, with the Trump administration coming into power and, and their use of, sort of Twitter and some of these other things that were seen as being, you know, democratizing um, effects. Uh, it's interesting to see that kind of flipped on its head and feel like those tools can also be used um, just like any tool, just like a sword. You know, it can be used for good things or bad things. And uh, right now we're seeing some of the, I think, in my opinion, and this is certainly an opinion, the downside of um Social media, for instance. Sure. I gave you as many answers as you had questions. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. That's great. So I have another question that I guess this is for either of you. I was reading a book by uh, a literary critic named Terry Eagleton. This is his 44th book. It's called Culture. He just published it last year. And and he, he uses some phrases in there that reminded me of Lullabot because he talked about cultures where there is a decline from the organic to the mechanical. And at another point, he talked about human relationships that have become contractual rather than organic. And that, that use of the word organic in culture made me think of what it seems like we try to do in our company, where we use technology, but we try to avoid some of these mechanical relationships. So then we have this atmosphere where we try to have fun and kick ass and do good and cultivate meaningful organic experiences. But I'm wondering if you if you guys think that based on the system that we live in, the capitalist system that uh, encourages growth, if that we can continue to grow and do the same things that we're doing and be forced in a way to become more mechanical in our interactions. Yeah, I can take a I can take a crack at that one. Uh, I mean, the short answer, just speaking on a deeply personal level, is I, I sure hope so. I sure hope so that we can continue to kick ass, have fun, innovate, you know, bring humanity in the business. Because if not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there's many of us at Lullabot that would want to stick around uh, and participate in that in that company, myself included. You know, um, it's uh, it's part of part of being able to uh, have these relationships with other really smart people and to treat each other like adults, uh, to treat our, our our clients like adults, and to make sure that you know that value is being created on both sides of the both sides of the relationships, both in terms of you know having fun, enjoying the work, getting to know the people that we're working with, and also making sure that the work that we do uh, is something that we're very proud of and something that our clients are benefiting of. I mean, those are the those are the values. At the end of the day, you know, I think we're privileged enough um, with the jobs that we have that we could go to most places and, and make money and get a job. Uh, I think the people that, that come to Lullabot, uh, I think, I think employees tend to come 
um, also because of the some of the intrinsic rewards, uh, like being able to work from home, being able to work with uh, other smart people. And that's not to say that other businesses don't do that, um, but I know I know that that value is high for people uh, here at Lullabot. And then hopefully our clients come uh, and, and work with us because of the um, high quality work that we strive to to create. Um, so yeah, I mean I think there is a certain level of mechanics, but the way that I tend to look at it is uh, I, I tend to be, I guess you could say, an eclectic thief. So <laughs> I tend to try to take the positives of capitalism uh, and and the positives of sort of uh, openness and transparency. Um, and I think the thing to do, you know, where capitalism starts to fall apart is when things like greed become the predominant form. Uh, and they start to take precedence over uh, the, the values of the company, or more importantly, the values of the people. And so I'd like to think that we strike a balance with that. And, you know, we may not always get it right, but we also lean on uh, transparency and openness within the organization to remain accountable. Um, and I think that's a good a good fail-safe mechanism that we have in the company. I don't know, Seth, do you have additional thoughts on that? Yeah, I think whenever you grow an organization into something large scale, um, you know, the go to way to, you know, solve that problem is to implement a lot of bureaucracy, like bureaucracy was invented to create, you know, regularity and predictability. And, um, and, and so when organizations go from small to big, um, what happens is, you know, management is no longer connected to the front lines. Um, they want control and they end up, you know, putting in systems that, you know, we've had for thousands of years that, you know, really come from, I wouldn't, you know, say that capitalism or Marxism or any particular political ideology is, is what's happening. I would say it's more that our, our structures for managing human beings you know, come down to us from, you know, like Julius Caesar and the Roman military and, you know, more recently, like Taylorism, uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor, you know, it's like we're, we're using these really old models to control large organizations. And, and that tends to, you know, squeeze out uh, humanness. Um, and like you say, Matthew, it becomes mechanical. Um, and those organizations then tend to be really bad at taking advantage of the gifts of the human beings within them. Um, you know, so you sort of, you end up with, with really large organizations that don't really, um, add up to the sum of the, the creativity and, and talent of the human beings within them. So I think the challenge for us in the way that we think about it is to continually, you know, build a company that's fit for human beings, um, that lets people have good work-life balance that involves ethical treatment of, you know, each other, you know, those sorts of things. Um, and if we can keep those things, if we can keep humanness kind of at the forefront and it, it is one of our core values, be human. Um, hopefully we can avoid some of the traps that come with organizational growth where there's a move to hierarchy and bureaucracy and, you know, pyramidal structures of power. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me that Lullabot very much exemplifies what some scholars call the new spirit of capitalism, where it's no longer pushing people to just squeeze out as much as they can, as much productivity as they can. And we often talk about how 
our ability to work from home is one of the most important aspects of our company. But one one thing that I've always been kind of frustrated or not frustrated, fascinated by, which is that at Lullabot, developers like me are only billed out for essentially six hours a day for 30 hours a week. And you guys were, I'm sure, part of that conversation. But uh, Marx, you mentioned Marxism, Marx famously wrote in Chapter 10 of Das Kapital that the the goal is to shorten the length of the working day. And to some extent, it feels like Lullabot is this kind of post-capitalist experiment. I wondered if you could connect some of these ideas of, of humanness and the shorter working day and how important that is for our particular culture. Sure, I think I can. You know, I, it's tough because as a services company, you are somewhat tied to hours. It's it's hard to get out of the the sort of like, you know, if you're um, Instagram and you know you've got 13 employees and millions and or billions of dollars of revenue or or you know capital built up, then it's really easy in theory to to do things like shorten the workday for everyone. Um, I think you know we're headed into an era where automation is going to take a lot of jobs. You know, driving is the classic example. Like when we have self-driving cars, will we still have cab drivers and bus drivers and truck drivers? And so what happens to all those people if those those uh, jobs are lost to automation? Um, and I think one of the best answers to that question, hopefully, would be that we try to shorten everybody's work weeks um, and, you know, and use that as one way to, you know, uh, deal with the problem of, you know, a declining uh, number of jobs for a growing number of people. Um, but I think that problem's about to get, you know, much worse than it's than it ever has been. Uh, and I don't know that shaving an hour here or an hour there off someone's day is going to really solve it. Um, I think, you know, for that kind of a problem, you really need something like, you know, uh, a guaranteed, you know, universal income or something like that. Um, which different countries are experimenting with right now and, and is very anti-capitalist um, and probably not necessarily Marxist either. But with with Lullabot, I kind of feel like we've struck the balance that that, you know, does that that serves both our need to continue to be a profitable functioning company that can still pay people. Um, and at the same time, you know, giving people as much work life balance as we can afford to. The, the one thing that I would say, though, about that six hours a day is it didn't come from, interestingly enough, just where, where did that originate? It wasn't some Marxist notion of like, well, let's reduce everyone's work day. Um, everyone else that's not a developer at Lullabot works, you know, a 40 hour week. And that's our general expectation. It more was coming from ideas around productivity and software development and the idea that, you know, really as a developer, you can only work so many hours in a week and have those be good, high quality hours. And you you go over a tipping point with with you know development where you start to introduce way more bugs um, and mistakes and productivity declines very quickly. And at that point, you might be doing more harm than good. And so we wanted to make sure that the hours that you know we were selling to our clients were high quality hours. So. In some ways, it's kind of like I wish it came from 
perhaps a more ethical be human place but it really it came from a combination of recognizing the limitations of of human programmers and where they were most productive and efficient and then also our background as a company highly involved in open source where we realized that people wanted to spend time contributing to the Drupal community um, or other open source initiatives and we needed to give them time for that and if we did give them time for that they ended up being better programmers overall when they were actually doing client work. So it's kind of those things that led us down that path more so than a desire to um, perhaps honor our be, be human value, for instance, and, and give people you know better work-life balance. That's more of a, a side benefit, I guess. Some of these things we do don't necessarily connect to some of these other more politically oriented ideas, but it, it just so happens that there's a long history of people that write about utopias and in their utopias, they often have people working these shorter work days and then they have the rest of the day to go do what they want, explore their leisure time. broader Drupal community, as well as the open source community. Some might say that either Lullabot was a leader or however you want to phrase it. There are other companies in the Drupal community and other technology companies that now, at least, are taking similar approaches to how they treat their employees. And I, I looked around at some of the other companies, for example, Trellin on their site, they talk about how we work with causes we care about and groups that change the world. Chapter three has statements on their site about investing in things that matter. Previous Next expresses a real strong commitment to supporting environmental causes. So there's a, there's a lot of companies in the Drupal community that have this this, these statements, these public statements about supporting, you know, things that matter. I'm wondering if there's anything that you think that's unique about the Drupal ecosystem with regards to this idea of doing good. I think the uh, perhaps the advantage there uh, is that uh, because Drupal uh, is open source and, you know, you, you perhaps see this in other uh, open source communities, too. I think there is a bent for. Um, more um, political leanings or uh, supporting causes and stuff because the the cost to entry is is so low. You know, it's free software. You can easily uh, put something together and get a site up and running and stuff. And there's also the uh, attraction of uh, open source software in the sense of freedom. You know, freedom of choice, freedom of uh, you know, freedom of uh, I don't want to say ownership, but you know, the ability, the thing, the concept that no is going to take it away from you, um, which is sort of the ultimate ultimate freedom. Uh, you know, it, so I think that and combined with just Drupal being a thriving community, I mean, Drupal is an ocean of opportunity. And so there's not much of a, a scarcity resource or a scarcity mentality going around where, 
you know, if we have additional work, we can either as a company choose to grow or choose to uh, work with uh, another, uh, well, Drupal company to to fulfill the work or just to, to give them give them the lead. And, you know, when we when demand gets high enough for us, for us, then we can consider growing and stuff like that. So, you know, maybe what it is, is that. Uh, and I guess I'll just have to speak for Drupal, but uh, the whole ecosystem of open source teaches a mentality of of sharing, transparent decision making, things like that. So it's no surprise that that ethos tends to trickle over into the way companies are run, too. Uh, and a lot of the uh, uh, company owners and people that work in other Drupal shops uh, talk, they're friendly, friendly competitors. Uh, and so, you know, we tend to have open conversations about, about things like that. Um, you know, in terms of like similar missions and objectives, I think, uh, I think that what that really speaks to is, um, the power of purpose, you know, of knowing the why you're doing something. You know, I think that, um, if you're in client services, for instance, like the amount of stress that comes from doing creative driven work is not insignificant. You know, I mean, we've all know we've all been there working on a project that maybe we started off being inspired by, but then it kind of kind of petered out or that the passion got lost along the way or stakeholder switched. And, you know, that stakeholder was the primary key, the primary person that kind of brought the, the enthusiasm and the charisma for the project. So, you know, having, uh, a cause or something that your team or company can rally behind, I think is, is really critical. And I'm actually, you know, it's inspiring to hear uh, that there's similar philosophies out there of people wanting to do good work, wanting to make an impact, you know, wanting to, to amplify what they do, not just with their client, but for their, for their larger communities that they're a part of too. I think, um, I think that's nothing but good things uh, can come from that, from amplifying the work that, that someone does. So do you guys believe those statements? I mean, do you think that the community as a whole sort of lives up to those? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's hard to speak for those companies, but I think every I think it's good to have goals, to strive to to want to do something, to accomplish something. I mean, you know, the... I always say that the the bottom line is you have to you have to know at that point when you're going to make a conscious decision to go out of business and that'll drive how important your values are to you right mm-hmm. uh, so this this other example that I that I heard the other day was there's a company they have their core values like the first value was be authentic in your work right and the last value of this particular company was financial success and it was very clear to each and every employee that if they had to lie to stay in business, if they had to not tell the truth or be inauthentic, that they were going to go out of business as an organization. So it's a good idea. You know, it's a good idea to prioritize what your values are. And you can have a purpose. You can have a mission. Um, but there's also the next step in sort of going a little bit deeper and seeing, well, what does that actually mean? And how much risk are we willing to place on that uh, within our organization? So, you know, I think that's an exercise for the companies. But I, I admire and respect that companies strive to, to do those things. You know, I want to I want to be a part of that group. Sure. I guess what I'm getting at in the question that I've been considering for a few months now, especially, 
wondering if there is evidence, if there's evidence that our community is effective in creating some sort of substantial change. Have you guys seen anything that suggests, yeah, the community pushes back against particular entrenched bureaucratic interests, or we are promoting something that we feel actually has a positive impact on the world? I mean, have you have you seen evidence that our community Broadly speaking, you know, maybe even beyond this idea of the individual companies, if it's if it's been successful in making the world a better place. I don't have quantitative data um, to that effect. I do think that if you look at the Drupal community at DrupalCon, at least those that show up and the type the type of agencies that are there and the type of conversations that are happening. I mean, there are a lot of B Corps. They're those that aren't B Corps, you know, the leaders of other agencies, and I, we do get to talk to them a lot, I think have similar values and, and uh, goals um, as far as sort of empowering people um, and treating people like human beings and, you know, creating uh, organizations where, where people want to stay. Um, you know, it seems like a certain type of person ends up running a digital agency, at least in the Drupal community. Um, and if you look across a lot of the agencies, as you noted in your article, Matt, uh, Matthew, you know, Drupal as a political act, um, you said something to the effect of, you know, looking at George Demet and Tiffany Ferris and Todd Neenkirk and Lev Tyspin and others, you know, that all of these people and the way that they run their businesses seem to have good intentions um, and create, want to create a better workplace. Is it because... You know, first of all, I don't know how you measure it, which is, I guess, your question. Um, so I don't have a good answer to that. Um, you know, second of all, I wonder how much of it is this new capitalism where, you know, to retain smart, talented, creative people and have them give you the gift of their creativity um, and, you know, intelligence, you've got to create a place where they want to be. Um, and that's not entirely about money anymore. You know, there's a lot of, of different dimensions to um, what makes someone a happy, you know, uh, thriving, flourishing employee. So I think that, you know, the world is changing, whether it's our community that's changing it or, you know, something um, like the just the, the dynamic of you know, retaining really talented people in a competitive economy. I don't know the answer to that, but you know, it's funny. I, I turned back to your article, Matthew, to answer half of your questions. <laughs> so obviously in some ways, I think you've done as much or more thinking about these questions than we have. You know, what do you think? What do you think that, uh, you know, when you look at the Drupal community, do you think there's anything measurable or special or, or noticeable that stands out to you as, you know, Hey, this community is special and it's, it's, you know, in general doing good in the world. I think for me personally that I have this gut feeling and I bet you guys share this feeling that even after years and years for me personally of working in the nonprofit world, that in the Drupal community, that people are trying to do something good. And what I've found difficult is like what you've said is to try and articulate that, to try and measure that. When Jerice and I examined commit credit data and we could find all of the organizations that are sponsoring it, we could see that there's a lot of money that's going into sponsoring people working on Drupal. 
and we could sort of measure those things. But one of the limits of our study was articulating some of these other contributions to the community, the non-code contributions, the people that run user groups, the people that run an organization and treat their employees well. They don't seem to be following the, the typical sort of business rules. So I've always had like this gut sense that there is something good. And I've just sort of on a continual search to try and understand that and articulate that. Maybe one specific example, like next week, our company is going on a retreat, the Lullabot retreat in Palm Springs. And we have only a, a limited number of hours in the in those days that we get together. This, ha- this is a once a year event. But you guys decided that we should do something to help. We should do something to help the world. And And I know we had talked about like trying to find something technical, but we ended up choosing to build bikes for a local organization. So, you know, I guess I would throw a question back at you then. So like, why is it important for our company to do these kinds of things? It seems like maybe it's good for business, maybe it's good for employees, but isn't there something more to that? Isn't there there's some deeper human connection that we that we share that makes us want to do these kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, Matthew, I, th- I just think you answered the question for us, <laughs> that there's some deeper human connection that we want to share. Uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, yeah, it, it's tough. I mean, it's it's inspiring to do things to, to help others. It's the, you know, I know uh, Seth, for instance, has been, um, he has a, a practice where he um, cultivates gratitude. He has a gratitude practice that he that he does on a daily basis. And, you know, it's always a good reminder to, of the things to be thankful for in life. And we have food on the table, uh, you know, hopefully healthy families. We have houses. We live in a, in a great place. And, you know, not everybody has access to even the, the basic needs. And so... I think it's, you know, if you were in a physical company, like maybe you would go, I don't know, do a do a, a run or something like that, like a run for a cause. And we just thought, you know, like even with our limited time together, I mean, we're getting together for four days. Um, why not take half a day and, um, you know, leave leave a little impact, uh, make a little make a little dent uh, in in the uh, in the area that you're in. So. Yeah, I mean, I felt like community service would be uh, a good uh, bonding experience for our team, a way to bond and connect that's sort of outside of work. But it is in that uh, sort of doing doing well by doing good um, spirit of things. And, and I think that things like that are important. And then when we're not together physically, it's the, the contributions that we can make either in open source software or just in our web communities or, or even in our local communities with, with teaching or, or things like that. But is it important? Yeah. You know, and I think with, with just to go back to the Drupal stuff, the um, I think that there's like a law of attraction, right? Uh, where the sort of the people that are uh, stepping up in the Drupal community, uh, they bring their values and principles with them. Uh, and like attracts like. I mean, when I when I started, I was interacting with Trees and Steve Wittens and some other people, and they kind of set the bar of what this community is going to be and be like. 
Um, and I remember when I wrote the e-commerce module that shortly after I put it all together, I was excited. I put it out there. I released it. I got good feedback uh, um, that one of the first users was uh, a guy that wanted to use it for a porn site. And I thought, oh, dear Lord, <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't I don't want it to be used for that. And I want to stop it. And I remember the argument on the mailing list about, hey, how can I shut this down? And the response was, you can't. It's open source software. And to shut that down is to shut down any other uh, places where the e-commerce module can be used for good. Uh, and so it, I just bring that up to demonstrate that it's not just the software. It's the people behind the software. I mean, just because that e the the it's being used by a porn site doesn't mean that I then am obligated in some way to go out and promote the site or put it up on the e-commerce site. I can still use my values uh, and um, try and attract the kinds of sites and the kind of intentions and purposes that I built the e-commerce platform for in the first place. Yeah, that's a great story. Seth, do you have any parting words? on this topic of uh, doing good? I, I think right now the best thing that we can all do is build companies that are fit for human beings. I mean, that's the whole point of this. this. And uh, I think if we keep that at the forefront of every decision we make and, you know, how we act in the world, we are uh, hopefully headed in the right direction. And uh, good luck to us all because – I think we're headed into some, some challenging times that way. Yes. Good luck to us all indeed. Well, thank you guys both so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. I'll be talking to you soon. Thanks, Matthew. Bye, Matthew. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hacking Culture. You can learn more about this show and subscribe at lullabot.com slash hackingculture. Please follow at Hacking Culture and at Matthew Tift on Twitter. You can also contact Matthew via email at hackingculture at lullabot.com. This episode is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. Hacking Culture is produced at Lullabot. The theme music is from the Open Goldberg Variations. Thank you for listening. Was that okay?